Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello from Vancouver. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. I just finished talking with Joan Judge about a really fascinating book that she just published called Republican Lens, Gender, Visuality, and Experience in the Early Chinese Periodical Press. This came out in 2015 with the University of California Press. And the book is really interesting and thoughtful on many different levels. So on the one hand, it brings us into and and really offers us a lens into and for visualizing a relatively understudied period in Chinese history. And this is the early Republican period and extends roughly 1911 to 1917 in the way that the book um, treats it. On the other hand, though, it is very much a book that offers some really, really useful methodological tools for writing histories and working on histories well beyond the confines of the early Republican period. And so one of the things that you'll hear us talking about over the course of the hour to come at various stages um, is the kind of methodological approach that Joan took to creating a history that takes images um, and the kind of aspects of perhaps a periodical, for example, that we might not otherwise see as central, um, the cover imagery, the advertisements, photographs, images um, therein, as really centrally um, located in the story. And so it takes images and text um, and their conversations very, very seriously as equal partners in generating this really fascinating account of a particular periodical um, that um, embodied some really amazing dichotomies and transformations in Chinese history in this period. So this is a book for you, in other words, either if you are interested in modern Chinese history, or if you're not. It's also a book that's um, got really uh, important contributions that it's making to how we understand women and gender in history, to the history of science and medicine, to the history of print and print culture, and to the history, I think, of voicing and authorship and how we get at some really difficult kinds of sources um, about which the kind of authorship and voicing can be very ambiguous. So listen for the stories, listen for Joan's descriptions of her really important methodological contributions that she's making in the book. Um, and thank you for listening for whatever reason you listen. Um, so thanks very much for being here and for your support of the channel. I hope you have fun and enjoy. Um, and I certainly did. I'm here today to talk with Joan Judge about her brand new book, Republican Lens. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Joan, and thanks for producing an amazing and beautiful and thoughtful book, and also for making time today to talk with me about it. Welcome to the channel. Thank you for making time for me, Carla. So, Joan, let's start at the beginning, or at least let's start big as is traditional for the channel. How did you come to be interested in working on modern China as your academic field? It goes back to a very um, sort of winding family history, but um, I guess the short um, sort of uh, story is that my 
father had a great uncle who was an archaeologist in China very early in the 20th century, made some very important oracle bone discoveries. Um, many of those bones are in the ROM right now. And then his son went on to study things Chinese at Harvard and was eventually Canada's ambassador to China. So I grew up, you know, I was in my my early teens when he was um, in China. And so anyway, there's been lore and objects and um, photographs, um, you know, that in my life for as long as I remember. And so it's always been an intriguing place that I um, wanted to explore at some point. Oh, wow. Very cool. So the book that we are talking about today focuses on a particular publication, the Funu Shibao, um, the Women's Eastern Times, for listeners who may not speak Chinese. It describes publications like, or it, it sort of raises the issue of not just how we understand this publication as a material object, as a social object, as a political object, but also kind of how we describe it, right? And you mentioned early on that, that describing publications like this in English is tricky. They weren't quite popular. Um, and even while this particular journal has been described as the first commercial women's journal, it was not fully commercial and not exclusively for women. It's better described as, and I'll just lay this out here um, for listeners, and this is in the, in the words of the book, a Shanghai-based, nationally distributed, proto-commercial, gendered journal that was closely attuned to the concerns of its readers the rhythm of everyday life, and the shifting global conjuncture. So that is um, the kind of groundwork that we're going to be working on today. So Joan, how did you come to this particular project? Why this particular journal and why a monograph about this journal in this context? I've worked pretty well in print culture since, you know, the beginning of my academic career. My my dissertation and then first book was actually on the parent newspaper of Funa Shabao, so the parent newspaper. So I've always worked in the realm of print culture. My second book was on women, and I was actually planning to go in another direction, but got brought into a project on women's journals, which sort of put together my first and second um, projects. And um, we decided to do a database. We were all going to focus on one particular journal. And I chose this one for sort of obvious reasons. I, I knew the family it came out of. And um, then, you know, I, I entered the world of Funisher Bound. It sort of took over my life for the next seven years or something. <laughs> so the book uses this publication as a lens into a particular period in, early re- in uh, Chinese history. So this is early Republican China, roughly 1911 to 1917, and the commercial print culture therein. In the beginning of the book, you describe this period um, as largely a historiographic black hole. So as we get started, um, can you say a little bit about that? Why has this period received relatively little historiographical attention? There's a number of reasons. One is... um, there was buildup before this period to the 1911 revolution. So that was a period of tremendous ferment in terms of um, revolutionary party reformists, all kinds of administrative changes on the part of the government. So that's a, a period that's, that's been given a lot of attention. And then there's sort of what's considered to be a watershed moment in 1919, um, you know, which is a, a bit of a ways into the republic. 
that is considered the beginning of, you know, China's real revolutionary history, you know, leading directly almost into 1949 and the communist revolution. So the period right after the revolution was considered to be um, by many a, a period of failure because it was supposed to bring into being this, this um, you know, new republic, this new political way of being. And that didn't immediately happen for a number of reasons, one being um, the, the nature of the president who took control, but also the lack of readiness, I think, on the part of the polity in general. So it's a period that's messy, that doesn't have a clear narrative, and that doesn't resonate directly with um, a clear, you know, revolutionary message or what would be in 1919, this this um, new culture message. So it's sort of a messy in-between period that's hard to get a handle on and is often just sort of skipped. You go from 1911, you talk about failure, and then, you know, 1919, things sort of pick up and, and take on a new life. So as we move through the chapters of the book, we're going to move through um, a series of tensions that emerge in the pages of the journal. And these pages include, and importantly include, and we'll talk about this, not just text, um, but texts of various sorts, but also images of various sorts. Um, And we'll talk about um, the particular methodologies that the book takes in really um, honoring and giving full voice to all of those aspects of the materiality of the publication. So among um, the various themes that are going to be really important, and I just want to put this out there right now, and we'll come back to it, um, is the theme of experience and the concept of experience. And you highlight early in the book um, some important tensions that are uh, kind of bound up in this changing notion of experience. Those include reformist and commercial tensions. They include tensions of agenda, the everyday and the epic. And they include tensions around strategies and tactics um, and the kind of differences and similarities between strategies and tactics of men and of women in this period. So let's get right into it. Um, Chapter one looks at the historical and print context of the Funu Shirbao. It pays really careful attention to the material aspects of the journal, not only its size, its shape, its kind of physicality, but also the funding and other institutional structures that made it possible. So one of the really important um, kind of factors here in in producing this journal is its editor. Um, This is the journal's activist editor, Bao Tianxiao. So let's start by talking about him. Can you tell us a little bit about um, who is Bao? Like what's important for us to understand about him and what were some of his important commitments as an editor? Uh, he is a fascinating figure and one who's been sort of put into a particular cultural box. He's considered to be a Mandarin duck and butterfly um, writer. And this is sort of a narrative that I'm really writing against in the book that there, that, you know, if this period wasn't completely ignored, this period of the early Republic, it was considered to be the period of Mandarin duck and butterfly, very romantic, trivial um, kinds of cultural um, 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 intervention. So this is something that I'm arguing against. And Bao Tianxiao, looking closely at him as an individual, really brought this to the fore because he didn't just write um, literature. And some of the literature he did write had very serious reformist messages or, or important reformist messages. But he also wrote um, all kinds of textbooks. I really see his most important role being a mediator between what he considered to be sort of the high ideas, the ideas that were, were really you know marking the, the changing tenor of the time. And, um, you know, those who were, you know, 
obviously literate because they're reading what he writes, but but not high intellectuals. So from very early in his career, and this started, you know, back in the 1890s when he lived in Suzhou, he saw his role as a translator, a cultural translator more than a linguistic translator. And um, I think that really um, is evident in, in Funer Shabao, and it's a crucial contribution he made, you know, in many different spheres, trying to bring, you know, new scientific, social, political ideas um, into the, the the public sphere of, of conversation and make them um, accessible to a broader range of people than um, had they had been in the past. Great. Now, in this first chapter, uh, the book also introduces some really important aspects of the methodology that's used for reading the periodical press. And there are three important strategies um, that I, I'd love to ask you to talk a little bit about because they seem really crucial here and also important to think about in terms of the broader methodological implications of the book, right, beyond um, this, this single publication. So the first strategy that we might talk about is an integrated strategy. Um, you talk about the importance of integrated reading of the journal in relation to a larger print culture. So can you talk about that as it structured the methodology that you brought to bear in the book? Yeah, sort of um, contextualizing the methodology a bit, it's, you know, journals like Funishabao, and and not just Chinese journals, but I think journals of this kind, periodicals, a popular periodical press in in any um any geographic context are very, very complex and very difficult to get a handle on. And most scholars have, have generally, you know, sort of mined these materials for particular nuggets of information on a theme that they're interested in and, and decontextualize that nugget of information and then created their own discourse. So what we really wanted to do, and I wasn't alone in this, I'm part of a larger, this was an international collaborative group that, um, you know, created a database and worked on this project. We really wanted to find a way of, of um, you know, reinstating the full materiality and the full world of the periodicals. So this is where um, this sort of multi-part methodology, you know, this is what it grew out of. And so the integrated aspect of it, which you just asked me about, Carla, means that we can't just read one periodical in isolation, but we have to, um, you know, read it in relation to other periodicals and something or other publications. So something that will come up later in our conversation. I hope, is um, the relationship between this journal and courtesan journals. So this was the Funisher Bao, the journal I wrote a book on, is, you know, targeted sort of respectable women. But there are tremendous overlaps with journals of courtesans. And um, the the two really have to be read against each other um, in order to understand each of them, not only because they advertised for each other, they were published by the same publishing house, and they circulated um, and were uh, available to the same audience. So they're part of the mental maps, if you will, of the people of the time. So we as scholars have to just not isolate one journal or one part of a journal, but try and get a sense of the sort of publishing firmament that existed at the time. Now you also talk about the importance of a situated approach. So a situated reading um, within circulating discourses, and those include the discourses, and, and we'll talk about some of these in the hour to come, um, of biomedical of global commerce and of politics and history, sort of local politics and history at various levels. Um, Can you talk about some of the most important aspects of that situated methodology for you? Um, It's just 
you know, and it seems sort of like, you know, it's evident whatever you're, you're, you're finding in a source, you have to, um, you know, situate it in this broader context. Um, so it's very easy to read these materials and, and think there's a particular take on medicine and it's either unique or it's new in this journal or it's, um, retrograde in this journal. But you really have to have a sense of, okay, how, how advanced was the biomedical discourse at this time? You know, who were people, who were, who was part of this conversation? How dynamic was was it, how was it really shaping medical practice, for example? So in order to get a sense of the importance of what's going on in a particular publication, you have to know what the broader discourse is. And so that you can you can see um, the place of, of this journal, the contribution that it's making to advancing, questioning, challenging that, that discourse. And in terms of, um, I mean, you've mentioned the database, right, and the importance of that in terms of the larger project. When you're thinking about these integrated and situated approaches, in what kind of material way does that manifest when you're using a database um, as a tool to get at some of these issues? Well, th- this methodology really informed the way we created the database. And um, the, the one facet of the methodology we haven't talked about yet is the horizontal, yes, which means reading um, a periodical as an entire text. So reading cover art against um, topical essays, photographs against um, readers' columns, etc. So reading the whole piece. And so in our database, and this is unusual, um, you know, very different from most databases and periodicals, we, we tagged and cross-referenced um, not only the articles, but the advertisements, the cover art, um, the photographs, um, you know, the, the fiction, absolutely everything. So we tried to make sure that it was possible for users to access all parts. Um, whereas, for example, if you use a reprint of a journal, you really can't get a sense of the images. And quite often, the advertisements are cut out. So those are things we've reinstated. So, you know, sort of ironically, the digital version gives you more of a real experience of the journal than um, a microfilmed or um, a reprinted version. And at the same time, we've created metadata for um, important terms. We've created metadata on individuals, which we've cross-referenced. So for example, um, if an individual like Bao Tianxiao, the main editor, we would um, give the user of the database a sense of what other kinds of things he wrote. So that leads to the notion of an integrated reading. So this is a man who didn't just edit this one woman's journal, but many fiction journals. He wrote fiction, he wrote textbooks, he wrote other things. And situated is less directly in the database because it's more concerned with um, you know the actual data. That's really something that the scholar sort of has to use what's in the database and then um, situate that with in, um, you know, secondary literatures or a broader knowledge of what was going on at that time. Great. So you use these three methodologies um, that we've talked about, integrated, situated, and horizontal methods of reading to do some really fascinating things and really fascinating storytelling. And let's actually get into it um, as we come to chapter two. Now, chapter two introduces what the book calls Republican Ladies. Republican ladies were, um, in the words of the book, the first generation of respectable public Chinese women who wrote for and were targeted by the journal. As you put it here, they didn't fit standard categories of their own day, and the ways that they were public, their publicness, was actually really interesting. So can you open up this category for us? For you, what's, Im- what's most important for us to understand about these, uh, this idea of Republican lady, um, and what's kind of most interesting to you about this category and about these women? 
These women were very much sort of in the mold of, of, of what were called talented ladies in the past, except those talented ladies. So these were educated um, women who wrote, but they wrote within very circumscribed circles and um, interacted within very circumscribed circles because they were meant to be um, women of the inner chambers. And that was the mark of their response, of their um, respectability, the fact that they were women of the inner sphere. Going in public, even having your words circulate in public, Public was something that was very damaging to a woman's reputation. So I see these Republican ladies as really being the first generation of those who continued to have that um, respectability. They were women of good families. Um, they were, um, you know, generally um, respectable women in terms of, you know, their, their relationships with men, etc. But they nonetheless made that step into the, the very public sphere in terms of circulating their photographs, circulating their words. Um, and, you know, some did one or the other. I mean, many, um, we have many photographs of women that we don't have their writings. Sometimes we have the writings, but they wouldn't submit the photographs. And up and up through um, the late 1920s, there's still a real stigma attached to a woman who lets her photograph um, circulate in public. And the reason is, you know, that is the kind of thing courtesans do, not what Republican ladies did. So I, I see this as a very courageous generation that is trying to put that behind themselves and, um, you know, have a public voice, take the risk and um, join public discourse in, in, in often very, um, um, very, very courageous ways. Awesome. So studying these Republican ladies and also other aspects of the journal involves another really interesting methodological challenge and sort of way of thinking about the methodologies of what's happening here that I think has broader ramifications. The chapter pays very careful attention to the methodological challenges of studying what you call modern Chinese gendered writing. And these challenges include identifying female authorship in a context when, you know, men were writing as women sometimes, men or women were concealing their identities, um, both of them were using pen names. Um, and so despite these challenges, you approximate here that roughly 50% of the material in the journal was written by women. So can you talk um, for us about some of these challenges and how you worked with um, and navigated, negotiated these challenges to come up with um, uh, the number that you did? It really goes back again to the methodology and trying to put different pieces of the journal together and then trying to situate this woman, trying to see if there are other indications, um, you know, other writings they did in other publications, other things that can tell us about their cultural context. Um, so it really demanded a certain amount of um, real detective work to try and see, can I really, um, you know, draw a line between this individual female name and this piece of writing? Can I really validate that it was it was written by a woman's hand? Um, the, the number that I came to 50% is a result of, um, you know, closely reading, taking every piece in the journal that was said to be attributed to a woman many, many times. I had to conclude they weren't. But I got to a point where I had a sense of, um, you know, when it really was genuinely a woman's voice. And a couple of things that I talk about um, in in the book are, for example, a reader's column that appeared early in the journal and then late in the journal. So for a couple of issues very early in the journal's history, around 1911, there was a, a reader's column. And then there was another one at the very end. And the one the contributions to the first reader's column, I'm convinced, were by men, given the, the um, thematic fo focus, this sort of dismissive tone. Um, 
um, just many things really um, resonate with, um, you know, pre-existing and concurrent reformist discourses that were, um, um, you know, written by men. But the later um, uh, woman's, re- the reader's column, went into such tremendous depth about things that only women would know about um, in terms of, for example, creating a club for women and the kinds of things that would be important to have in the library, the, the geographic location that would have to be, you know, at a place that was easy for women um, who had had bound feet to get to. Um, it, and, you know, discussions about things like um, hiring wet nurses, creating a service so that women could screen wet nurses. So this, these writings in the second reader's column both gave you a sense of the minutia of women's everyday lives and the, the kinds of concerns they would have, like getting a good wet nurse for their, their children. And at the same time, a sense of how, how um, scientifically aware these women were and socially aware. Um, so a tremendous depth to their writing. So you know, one of the greatest difficulties was not sort of characterizing and, and trivializing what was woman's writing because the profundity of it, you know, often was greater than that of, you know, much of the writing I know was by men. So, you know, trying to sort of cordon off a sphere that you could say women address these particular topics, but even if they were sort of feminine topics, not addressed in feminized or trivializing ways. So that's rather a long answer. It's It was a very complex part of the book, and it's something that came very late in the research because, um, you know, it took a tremendous amount of time to really get a sense of tone and register to the point that I felt, you know, with quite a bit of conviction when I, I, I was clear something was written by a woman or a man. Great. So after this chapter that introduces this category of Republican ladies, and I want there to be a Beyonce song called right? <laughs> All the Republican Ladies, All the Republican, Pick Your Pins Up. Um, so, uh, sorry, I digress. I, I really, I really want to make that happen. So Beyonce, I'm sure you're listening to this. Yes. Um, read the book and, and, and please um, write that song. But in the meantime, we can at least talk about the chapter. So after the chapter that introduces these Republican ladies, we have a chapter, chapter three, that it, that's really fascinating. It takes us into their writings um, in depth. So this chapter focuses on the notion of everyday experience in those writings. And you talk about um, the importance and the significance of everyday experience as an epistemic source, uh, kind of in contrast with other kinds of epistemic sources like book learning, for example. Now, one of the um, kind of driving forces for the way that this notion of everyday experience was manifest in many different respects in the journal was the particular vision and the, the editorial practices of this editor that we've talked about, um, Bao Tianxiao. So can you talk for us about his vision of kind of lived daily experience? For him, what was important and what are some for you um, of the most fascinating ways that this manifest in the journal? Well, experience, as you know, many people from Gadamer to Joan Scott have taught us is an incredibly fraught concept and, you know, one that can never be taken, um, you know, just at face value. But it was crucial to the journal in that it was really Bao Tianxiao's um, prime editorial objective was to get women to share their experience. And his point of departure really was that these women had something to say. He really had tremendous respect for them and believed that um, 
you know, they had a realm of knowledge that that needed to be shared. So I think there was a genuine impulse on his part in trying to um, solicit this experience from women. One of the greatest ironies was that at the same time, he was very opposed to women's poetry. So he was trying to get women to write in in new discursive modes, you know, topical essays, not poetry, he considered that retrograde. And in this sense, he was really a typical reformer. This goes back to one of the great reformers, Liang Qichao, who considered women's poetry to be sort of, you know, a mark of the obsolescence of, of traditional Chinese culture. So he wants women's experience, but he wants to dictate the terms in which they're going to give it to him. And sometimes they do. And, and you know, there are women who write, for example, about the experience of childbirth that, you know, several of one woman's friends had gone through. And then she goes on to talk about differences in approaches to, um, you know, teaching midwives, et cetera, in Japan. So again, something that starts with a woman's experience, but, but really branches into, you know, the whole major questions of the era. So some women write those kinds of essays, which he was absolutely committed to getting. Um, but much of their experience is embedded in the poems that he sort of put at the end of the issues and constantly, um, you know, spoke of dismissively. So I think the journal gives us a tremendous amount of experience, but not exclusively of the kind that he wanted. Um, and another thing that I think is very complex about it, about this notion of experience is this is a journal that was commercial, as we've said, sort of quasi-commercial. And so in a lot of ways, this woman's experience was commodified. So even if I believe Bao Tianxiao genuinely felt woman's experience was something that needed to be shared because it had social political value, um, at the same time, it was something that, um, you know, was, was, was commodified, but, you know, uh, you could you could consider people thinking, okay, this is interesting. I'm going to read about you know this particular woman's experience. Even that one article I talked about with um, the discussion of um, childbirth, and that article was very harshly criticized. Somebody wrote in in the issue after it appeared and said, "What are you doing? You know, publishing this stuff?" Because you know she talked about um, infected lactating breasts and you know the the, the cervix expanding. And, and and this writer wrote in and said, this reader wrote in and said, "This is you know this is absolutely disgusting." So, um, tremendous number of tensions in terms of, you know, uh, how Bounty and Xiao was trying to shape this experience, what this woman were giving him as experience, but nonetheless, experience is absolutely crucial in understanding what was going on. So he was doing this um, as you really, um, really interestingly are describing here in this chapter through his editorial column, right? His calls for submissions to the journal. There were essay contests. There were um, diaries and photographs that you talk about here. Also, um, just to make sure that we're paying um, some attention at this point to the visuals of the journal and the ways that those are actually really important parts of the text that you're reading um, for this project. You talk um, really fascinatingly here about the front covers of the journal and the way that they're also um, manifesting like a certain uh, self-reflexivity in women, um, the, the way they're depicting acts of looking. How does this, um, or can you talk a little bit about that basically and the ways that that is bound up in what's happening in terms of notions of experience in the journal? Yeah, the cover art to Funer Chabot is conceptually very complex. So it's unlike cover art in, in anything that comes before this period, which, you know, was generally just an interesting typeface. Um, and after this, of course, we have many cover girls in later covers of, of various genres of, of journals. 
but they're often the very posed, you know, object of the gaze kind of thing. The women on the front of Funajavao are actively doing things. And, you know, as Carla just said, they are, they are looking. So they're not just being looked at, they're lookers. And, you know, I'm sort of drawing from that. They're not just being known, but they are knowing. So the cover of the book is actually, you know, one of the, the most wonderful covers of, of the whole run of the journal, which is a woman who's out photographing herself. So she is not in front of the lens. She's behind the lens. She's, um, you know, in a, um, a rural setting. She's taking a picture of a deer. Other women are looking. The very first cover is women looking at themselves, um, looking at um, an, a copy of, of Funa Shabao, which has them on the front. So they're looking at themselves, um, reading the journal. It's, it's And then there's another cover with a woman looking at a bookshop display of a number of covers of, again, Funa Shabao. So there's, you know, this reflexivity that women are involved. They're an active part of the economy of this journal. They're not just there for someone, you know, for an external observer to come and look at. Great. So the writings here that are described um, in this chapter of the book um, are described as scientized, politicized, and quantified in terms of the way or the, the, the way that they are rendering daily practices. So daily practices here are scientized, politicized, and quantified. And we see that coming up um, really interestingly in the next chapter. So chapter four, Public Bodies, takes us specifically into a particular realm of writings by women in the journal. And these are writings on topics related to women's reproductive health. Um, and I want to also just um, take a moment to mark this chapter and the importance of this chapter, chapter four, not just to you know the history of print culture, the history of modern China, um, the history of sort of visual culture, but also the history of science and medicine. And so if any listeners are um, interested in those topics and wouldn't otherwise know um, to read this book, um, there's some really fascinating history of medicine and history of science stuff happening here. And, and this chapter really kind of um, uh, gives that full um, treatment. Um, and it's really, really interesting. So let's get into it. Um, this chapter is also, like other chapters are, identifying tensions that emerge from the journal. And the tensions here are tensions that come out of medical discourse and ideas about medical discourse. One of the three tensions um, that you talk about is the tension between reform and commerce. So can you talk um, for us about that, sort of what kinds of tensions between reform and commerce that are specific to medical discourse are coming out um, for you most interestingly in women's writings for the journal about um, female reproductive health? I think the tension between reform and commerce is probably most salient in the journal um, when you look at the advertisements. And advertisements in a journal like this aren't just, you know, one image and, and um, you know, some short description. They're, they're narrative texts. And so um, and they really have to be read in, a, in the same way, I think, as the texts that appear in the journal, you know, whether they're essays or other genres of writing. And quite often, you know, from what we know about advertising at this time, they were actually written by some of the same um, authors who wrote for the journals. You know, some of them, they're supposed to be written by, you know, actual patients. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of, of debate about whether or not they were. Some claim they seem to have been, some claim they, they weren't. And my sense is that even if they weren't written by actual patients, they were written by people who had an, a sense of the preoccupations of those people. So that's one of the, the core areas where we see 
um, attention between um, reform and um, commerce because um, obviously these advertisements are trying to sell products, but at the same time, they're also trying to sell new body concepts, a new sense of biomedicine. Many of the advertisements are for Western medicines, Western patent medicines, like, you know, pink pills for pale people or Doan's kidney pills. Um, so at, at the same, you know, they're introducing new ways of thinking about the body um, that go beyond sort of the ways um, the, you know, Chinese medicine had looked at the body at the same time conversant with that, because it's the only way they could make themselves um, legible to the public. Um, so trying to, you know, sell a product and at the same time sell a new vision of illness and the body and healing. And you talk about this vision in terms of a kind of biomedical imperative. How would you um, open that up a little bit for, for listeners? What was the nature of this biomedical imperative and how did Bao's um, particular activities as an editor help promote or shape this in a particular way? Well, childbirth had always been a moral imperative, obviously, in China. I mean, having many children, having healthy children was, was crucial to, um, you know, the health of the population, the Confucian ideology, etc. Um, but, you know, when we get to the late 19th, early 20th century, it also becomes tied into a national imperative and then becomes linked to a biomedical imperative because the sense is that the only way the national body is going to become stronger is if the Chinese start to integrate biomedical principles into their, their medical and scientific thinking. And at this point in time, I think it's really interesting. And again, it's a reason I think this period is so fascinating. You know, even me trying to talk about there being a biomedical side and a sort of Chinese side is very kind of false because things were so merged. But the notion was that, that you know, these biomedical principles had to be integrated. I don't think there was a sense that, you know, we had to toss out everything related to Chinese medicine, but that these new biomedical principles were absolutely crucial to um, improving the health of, of the Chinese population. And, you know, Bao was very concerned with the number of women who were, you know, dying in childbirth. And even though, you know, he wasn't quoting statistics, we have later statistics that show, you know, that the, the, there really was a, a tremendously high rate of maternal and infant mortality. And much of it was because there was no sense, um, even at this time, you know, in the early 19-teens of the importance of sterilization. So you had, um, you know, the horrific infections that were killing mothers and children. Um, and um, he was aware of this and felt that it was absolutely, this was one of the, the key points of his, his program for change was that, um, you know, these principles had to be better understood in China, more widely disseminated. And um, women themselves had to understand their bodies better and understand what was necessary to, um, you know, have a successful and healthy birth. Now, if the first tension um, that you point us to here is this tension between reform and commerce that I just mentioned, the second tension brings us back to this really fascinating topic and area of experience, right? And this is a tension that you mark between experience and expertise. And there are some really interesting case studies that come out of this chapter around the way women were writing about menstruation and menstrual pads, um, miscarriage, childbirth. There's some really, really interesting examples here. Can you talk about this tension um, in terms of what you think perhaps is most interesting here between experience and expertise? Yeah, so you have a number of men writing um who were, for example, being trained in Japan and who had a sense of this biomedical imperative from a very scientific point of view. 
and, you know, wrote passionately about the need to, to change things. But you also had women, for example, um, I spoke about um, an article when we were discussing experience, the woman who had three friends who died in childbirth and who herself had clearly had some experience in Japan and knew a tremendous amount about, you know, what was taught in midwifery schools, how they had these wax, you know, reproductive organs to help people understand. Um, she talked about different instruments that were used in the household of a particularly wealthy Japanese man when his wife gave birth. So you have, um, um, you know, both men and women who are talking about the, um, you know, the need to reform childbirth, the woman more from the point of view of sort of experience or point of departure is the death of women in childbirth. Um, and the men more from the point of view of, you know, this is going to make us part of a global health system. So um, this one doctor who wrote quite a bit in Funashabaum went on to become quite famous. He wanted to create statistics on menstruation because he felt that every country in the world had statistics on menstruation and he recorded some of them in the journal and China wouldn't be part of this global conversation unless they had data and they, you know, joined this global so he's looking at things from, you know, the point of view of sort of data and expertise and and um, and and that sort of sphere of knowledge. Whereas a woman is is coming from the point of view of okay, this is the experience women have had, and this is what we need to do in order to make the childbirth experience something that is you know radically different and much safer. And this also um, kind of alludes to the third tension that you talk about here. And I'll just um, kind of uh, relate that in the words of the book rather than talking too much about this, because we've talked a little bit about this already. This is a third tension between um, what the book calls male constructions of pathologically modest women and women's own graphically candid writings on childbirth, menstruation and breast health. And we've already talked a little bit about that in the course of the conversation. So, did you want to speak? To yeah, one it's it is, um, I, you know, something that is incredibly. Well, should we go there? Yeah, I think it is. That yeah, let's go there. Okay, um, <laughs> because there is this notion, and it really is in all imperial writings and late imperial writings that you know women would not talk to male doctors, and we. It seems that much of this is a myth, and and you know that there was this incredible taboo about women talking about their bodies. And, you know, this is one of the huge areas of tension that this, this journal just explodes because you've got on the one hand, you still have men, including Bautian Chow, saying there's these taboos and that's what's killing women. He says that's why women are dying because they, they won't disclose what's really going on with their bodies. And then you've got these women in the journal who are writing, you know, as Carla just said about, you know, the most intimate bodily processes. So anyway, I think it's, it's, it's a fascinating, um, you know, example of how a horizontal reading can really explode a discourse that, that we think is, you know, here's a, you know, continuous discourse. We've got these women who are too modest and, you know, this, this, you know, medical problem as a result. And it's absolutely untrue when you look at what's going on in the pages of the journal. Great. Thank you. So as we move from this chapter to chapter five, we move into, again, a really interesting account of women's education in this period. And the chapter looks at two dichotomies in the journal. The first dichotomy is the dichotomy between public and private education. And you show here a tension between a kind of late imperial concept of private family learning, um, and you describe this in the book, and an early 20th century um, sort of Shanghai establishment of public schooling for women. Can you talk about how this tension um, played out in the journal and perhaps what you find most interesting about this tension between public and private education in this period? 
Yeah, because again, you see the lines getting very blurred because you have a number of forward-looking men who, you know, in if they'd lived, you know, 50 years earlier, would have just educated their daughters in the home. But living as they do in the early 20th century, being reformers themselves, they want to institutionalize education. And interestingly, a number of these cases were men who had many daughters themselves. And so there are a number of examples and a number of these male figures were very close to Bautin Chao. And so their their families are very present in the journal who created schools that, you know, had real traction that, that you know, continued to educate young women for, for decades, many of them, and were some of the, you know, most important first um, schools for women. But, you know, we can't really say it's public education, um, in, you know, completely institutionalized and separate from the family. So it's, it's sort of this transitional, liminal kind of uh, educational institution. And I think the kind of um, experience women had, particularly the women who were part of those families, was very different from women who I also give examples in the chapter of young women who traveled very far from home to go to school and left their families behind. And one of the things that I uncovered in the journal that, you know, I hadn't come across before, and I've worked quite a bit on women's education, is um, examples of, of young women who were dying, um, it, you know, when they went away to school. And again, it's hard to see if this is another sort of um, sort of layer of the trope of the talented woman. So the late imperial talented woman, because they weren't supposed to be talented, quite often they supposedly died young. And this was a way, I think, to sort of warn women against indulging in too much writing and, and that kind of sphere. Um, but I, it, it seems there, there really are, you know, actual tangible examples because we have, you know, countless bio, biographies of these young women who die um, because they work so hard at school, because they were, you know, in a school in a very cold and distant place. So again, I think the journal helps to bring to light um, the real materi- material realities of, of education for women and not just, you know, what we know most about, which were debates on it, whether it's good for them or not good and what the curriculum should be or not be, um, but the actual, you know, difficulties of that experience. How did those material realities play out in the case of the second dichotomy, right? You talk about the importance of um, not just private versus public, but then also talent and virtue as being this other dichotomy um, that's motivating the way education is treated in the pages of the journal. Um, And this very much um, in this description brings out, um, again, the importance of material aspects of education for women. So for you, um, what's most interesting for us to understand about this uh, talent and virtue dichotomy here? the dichotomy, which again has been, you know, in existence for absolutely centuries, you know, takes on new layers here. And um, what becomes vilified as talent is still poetic talent. As I said before, Bautin Shao didn't even want it in his own journal, even though he published it. So poetic talent, but also very abstract intellectual talent. So virtue now gets coded, you know, as it always had been, um, you know, a virtuous woman was a practical woman, a woman who took care of the household before she wrote. So, you know, the trope is that after all her work was done late at night, the talented woman could sit down and write because then she'd taken care of family and husband and food and all those other things. So we still have this connection between virtue and practicality in the early 20th century, but it's a different kind of practicality because these women are now out of the household. They are possibly looking towards vocations, but they're encouraged to learn things like 
um, you know, chemistry that's going to help them understand when food rots or, um, you know, practical aspects of running the household, you know, even economics for, you know, accounting, being able to do the household accounts. And so the dichotomy now is between these practical virtues that are going to advance the family and ultimately advance the nation versus abstract intellectual learning that, you know, according to these critics, just takes women nowhere and is just sort of a drain on society's resources. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Joan. So as we move to chapter six, um, we move into, again, another really fascinating chapter. And this is a chapter that looks very carefully at the issue of sexuality in the journal's texts and photographs. And it, it sort of uses this exploration of sexuality in the journal as a way to explore what the book calls the ambiguous sexual status of the Republican lady. So let's talk about photographs here. Um, the, the chapter pays really special attention to the importance of photographs as sources that help us understand this phenomenon. And these include photographs in courtesan albums, um, right? And, and you've talked a little bit already about the importance and the interest for you of these courtesan um, sources. So can you talk for us about what you think, again, is the most kind of important and interesting um, way to understand the importance of photographs um, in this context in, in terms of its um, ability to help us understand sexuality in the journal and beyond. Yeah, it's it's extremely difficult to get at sexuality because, you know, as I say, it's one of the things that Bao Tianxiao does not flag as a topic. Anything with a whiff of sexuality, he even sort of overtly says in his editorials, we're not going to have this here. There were fiction journals that, you know, did that kind of thing. Um, so it's it's all very implicit. It's all very coded and very difficult to, to decode. Um, so what I tried to do was, you know, as I mentioned before, the fact that these <clears throat> Republican ladies were public was all already something that was was new and a bit um, you know uh, a, a bit contested um, and the fact that they were posing you know for the camera and allowing these images to to circulate which is something that only courtesans had done in the past marks something about them about either their courage or maybe their sort of liminal status and I I focus a lot in this chapter on one woman who's really tremendously liminal in that that um, she is married, but she's actually the second wife to a man. The story's too complicated to go into here. Oh, but so I love this story. Yeah, Sorry, yeah, guys. it's absolutely amazing. But um, she's one of the few instances where you can really say, hey, the lines are really, really hard to draw in this instance. But if you just look at the photographs, um, it would be very difficult um, at sort of a first read to determine whether or not a woman was a courtesan or um, an upright woman because um, quite often the modes of posing, um, even the dress, um, would, would would give you a lot of pause. And I've shown a number of these photographs to people who know a lot about photographs in this period, and quite often they would say, um, you know, that there was absolutely no way of knowing. And actually Amy Tan in her last book did a lot of consulting with me and, and actually Kathy and, and um, Gail Hershatter and others because she had some photographs of a grandmother and she was like, was she a courtesan or was she not? So this is real, you know, a real issue. So what I tried to do since I had the absolute luxury of two bodies of sources that I knew were marked, that I knew the woman in my journal were respectable. I knew the ones in the courtesan album were clearly courtesans. I tried to figure out what some of the codes were. And, you know, some of them are, are more evident, like only courtesans would lie down, only courtesans would be astride on a horse or a bicycle. Um, but there were other things that were sort of more interesting, like only courtesans would appear with a book, 
even though education was so important to the Republican lady. Um, and I tried to, you know, figure out, you know, even the clothing was very similar. Supposedly a high collar, a very high collar was a mark of the courtesan, but you found that in a lot of the respectable Republican ladies. So the line between sort of for these Republican ladies to either to look alluring, um, but at the same time, you know, to retain their respectability, it was, there was a very, very fine line there that I tried to sort of help readers unpack what the differences between the two were and get a sense of um, just how far Republican ladies went in in sort of suggesting um, sexual availability while at the same time remaining se- remaining sexually guarded. And one of the really useful things that the chap one of the many really useful things actually that the chapter does is reminds us that it's not enough to just look at the photographs alone simply as images. Right? You need to take the captions and the way that they're embedded in the text really seriously in reading some of these cues. Right? There's one example of um, I think a woman who had a red dot on her lips that yep. otherwise would have been like, oh, yep. she's a court. But if you read yep. the caption, yep. you see that's not. Yeah. And so, you know, I've and I've debated this with other people working on photographs in this era and some who were hoping that they could do a history just based on photographs. And I really think you need the conversation with the images in order to understand um, what is going on. It's 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 crucial. So let's um, before we move to the conclusion um, of the book and you know toward the conclusion of our conversation, let's go back to this one story of this woman that you mentioned, um, who was the second wife of her husband, um, because she is really awesome, and I want to at least talk about her for a little bit. Like she actually goes with her. This is um, uh, just to, to let listeners know. This is Tang Xiaohui. She goes with her husband to the courtesan quarters, right? I mean, like she orders Mm -hmm. um, just uh, along with the rest of the guys, she slaps a guard in the face at one point. I mean, can you just kind of briefly um, talk a little bit about her um, as a figure um, in this context that we're talking about? Yeah, I think she's really sort of one of the, you know, at the younger end of the Republican ladies, um, you know, given the span that I talk about um, in the course of the book. And she had a very interesting background. She was actually the daughter of a man who used to be a teacher, but then had a photography studio. So there's, you know, photographs are already in her, her, her life from a very early stage. And she meets this man who will become a very um, famous um, journalist, um, Xiao Piaoping, um, who um, he comes to her father's photography studio. He's teaching in that area, meets her, falls in love with her and sort of does a Pygmalion, makes sure that she gets an education. And then, you know, she's out of the blocks when she's got an education, she's writing. She wrote, you know, a number of pieces for Funa Shibao. And one amazing poem, which is a classic example of how, you know, this poetry is telling us so much more than, you know, about women wilting in the boudoir. It was an absolute critique of the president of the Republic and the way he let the Japanese trample all over the Chinese through the the 21 demands. So anyway, she was a real voice, a real force to be reckoned with. She and her husband became known as sort of the the newspaper couple because they both became famous journalists. And at one point, she was sick of him constantly going to the quarters and quarters alone. This was in Beijing, not in Shanghai, to meet his sources and, you know, talk to people. And, you know, she suspected do other things. So she said, look, if you're really going to to get sources, why can't I come? I'm a journalist. So as Carla said, she went with them and and, um, you know, ordered drinks. And there's a number of, you know, interesting anecdotes that I won't go into. But then once they, they moved from one courtesan house to the other,
other. And they have to be announced um, when they move from one courtesan house to the other if they're bringing a courtesan with them. And they were actually, um, you know, it was just her husband and other men and this woman, Tang Xiaohui, but they were announced as if a courtesan was with them because the guard at the next house they went to took her for a courtesan and she slapped him in the face and was totally humiliated and never went back. So, you know, I talk about her crossing the lines. I mean, even absolutely physically, she physically went into the quarters and quarters. But in many other ways, her photographs, there's more photographs of her in the journal than of any other woman. And um, in her writing and in her life. So a fascinating figure who really, you know, just brings to light so many of these tensions. So as we move um, toward the conclusion of our conversation, we also move to the conclusion of the book. This is a conclusion that opens out into some stories of flight and flying women. And we meet um, early on in this chapter, China's female flyer, Zhang Xiaohun. So can you um, kind of introduce for us some of what you take to be the most important aspects of the way engaging this idea of flight and flying and flying women specifically helps us kind of um, wrap up or think about or kind of appreciate um, what's been happening in the book at this point in the conclusion. Yeah, I think the story of Zheng Xiaohun brings together many of the threads, which is why I conclude with her. So there's this fascinating image of her, which appears in the second last issue of the journal. And she's, um, there's, uh, you know, an image of her in the middle in sort of a classic pose. But there are also, it's juxtaposed against a flying field, a World War I um, flying field. And there's also a very small image of, if we look closely, we can see it's her getting into the cockpit of an airplane. And within that same issue of the journal, there's a story of her going up in an airplane um, against the best um, wishes of um, the, the official presiding over the aviation field. I won't go into why she was actually there, but it turns out that um, she doesn't fly the airplane, and this is important. She's just a passenger. Nonetheless, the plane um, does crash. She's hurt, and that's sort of the end of her adventurous flying. But um, I think this, this, the photograph of her and the story about her and the tremendous amount of attention that's given to it um, highlights a number of important themes and, um, you know, some of which are sort of predictable and some of which really aren't. And one is, of course, you know, women and courage, et cetera. Um, and, you know, there's a number of articles in the journal that talk about, you know, men in all countries get up in airplanes and in China. Um, no, they say women in all countries get up in airplanes in China, not even men do. So it's part of this discourse of, you know, national cowardice. So here she is getting up there and saying, you know, I'm going to fly in an airplane. So there's that level, the national. Um, but at the same time, there's something that's, again, sort of liminally erotic about the notion of a woman in an airplane. And I put this together again with courtesan photographs, fascinating photographs of courtesans in fake airplanes. And, you know, this was a prop that you could rent at photo studios at the time. So we, there's a number of photographs in the al courtesan albums of courtesans in um, airplanes. So sort of comparing the register of what these courtesans are doing in these mock airships and what this Zhang Xiaohun do, woman is doing um, in an actual airplane is incredibly interesting. And I also trace the family that she's part of, which is a very respectable, important family at the time. And I talk in a way about how that family sort of kept her grounded. So from really aspiring to the heights that she wanted to. 
And then one other layer that comes into this in the constant discussions of flight and flying in Funashibao is the um, connection between flying and Taoist transcendence. So we've got people talking and, you know, sort of evoking a classical Chinese poem where this guy switches out the characters for the name of a certain bird to put in airplanes, but then ends up talking about, you know, so it's, it's a, this, this, you know, Taoist imagery and this notion of flight and fantasy and transcendence. Um, but at the same time, engaging with this new sort of techno-modern era of, of the, the flying machine that is still seems to be a bit beyond China's grasp. So tremendous amount is going on, um, and I can't unpack it all here, but I think it really brings to the fore the many, many threads of, of discourses that are going on at the time and in the journal. Um, you know, and, and sort of starting from the point of flight gives you a sense of that broad spectrum of approaches to things. Absolutely. So, Joan, um, I, we could easily talk for another couple of hours about the book. Right? There's a, a ton that we didn't have a chance to talk about. But in the meantime, as we um, now come to our conclusion, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that um, you'd want to mention for listeners, especially perhaps for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers? I think the main thing I would want to say is... Um, you have to be lookers if you're really going to get this book. You can't be just listeners or even readers. The images are so absolutely crucial. And it was one of the greatest fights in getting this book published because I actually wanted 120 images. I ended up with 90 and UC Press was very generous in the end. But, you know, I only got a certain number that were inserts in color, but the, the story cannot be told without the images. And I don't think it's just the story of this book, but I think no historical story can be told without the pictures. And, and so it's, it's just essential that, you know, as we try to learn about the past, we can somehow try to find the images and put those together with what we know is going on in terms of discourse and narrative. Great. And now that the book is out and congratulations on, I think what's um, I hope is obvious, um, a, an amazing book, um, really thoughtful, really thought provoking and really um, beautiful and, you know, helpful in terms of modeling what can happen when you take images and text both seriously in producing a story about the past. Now that it's out, what's next for you? What are you currently working on and inspired by? I'm working on something that sort of came out of, well, clearly came out of much of what I was thinking about when I wrote this book, um, a project on everyday knowledge. And I'm looking at a very different kind of sources, um, encyclopedias for everyday life. And part of what I'm trying to do is say that you know, the periodical press itself has opened up a tremendous new world, a layer of culture and knowledge that we haven't known a lot about. But I think there's even other layers below that that are much more deeply submerged. And that is sort of older texts that continue to be reproduced in this period. So I'm looking at um, encyclopedias that had been in print since the late Ming Dynasty, so since the, the 16th century. But what's fascinating is supplements are added um, in, when we get to the turn of the 20th century. So I'm looking at these supplements and sort of this notion of supplementary knowledge and what is considered to now be essential knowledge and how that continues to work if we're thinking of a horizontal reading in the economy of these um, encyclopedias with information that's been there since the 16th century. So trying to get at another level of um, sort of what we could think of as quotidian or everyday knowledge. That's awesome. Well, best of luck with that project. I can't wait to see what comes out of that as well. And in the meantime, um, thanks very much for taking time out of your work to talk with me today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Carla. It was my pleasure. 
You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we will see you next time.